This is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. And our guest today, Christopher Key Chapel. He is the Doshi Professor of Indic and Comparative Theology at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, where he founded and currently directs the Masters of Arts in Yoga Studies. This interview being done in uh, late December 2020, the year of a uh, the end of a very trying year. But I understand, Chris, you're still doing your courses uh, via Zoom. Yes. Is that right? We have completely been accessible online since the beginning. So it's been a fairly smooth transition, and the students have been remarkable in their diligence. That's great. Um, Chris, we had you on once before very early in the life of this podcast, and we, uh, we usually have people recount the origins of their sort of spiritual journey, but we did that the first time you were on, and I encourage our listeners to uh, listen to uh, that original interview. One of the reasons I thought of having you back now at the end of this most eventful year uh, it'll be the beginning of what we hope will be a less <laughs> a different kind of eventful year by the time people hear this. But um, you've been doing a lot of work. You're one of these uh, rare, in my experience, scholars who uh, cross over into real world um, circumstances and events. Um, and uh, you've been doing a lot of things having to do with the ecology and climate change, especially in your field of study as it relates to uh, theology and matters of spirit. So can you give us a little background on how you came to that, um, what seems to be a passion of yours? Yeah, I think it's, it's really from childhood. And my father had grown up in Canada. He was born in 1908. And he had been a university student at the University of Toronto and a student athlete. And he was on the lacrosse team. And if we calculate it would have been in the, um, you know, the mid-20s, at a time when the world was very energized, and his experience included watching an exhibition game played by Ojibwes. And the Ojibwes had come in, the indigenous peoples, as they say in Canada, the first peoples that had displaced the Huron from Bruce Peninsula in southern Ontario. And he was so amazed with their skill that he was adopted into the tribe for that summer. And he learned in the forest how to walk without making sound, mm -hmm. how to become invisible within the environment and to simply observe. And as we were being raised in rural New York State, we were given those same skills. My father would take us out into the forest and teach us to be quiet, teach us how to regard, how to see perhaps the deer 
the dappled deer and the sunlight in the distance, and to distinguish the bird song and to know the birds that gave us life. And then when I was seven years old, we went to visit his brother in Ohio. And his brother, my, my parents and uh, their siblings were unusual people. And my uncle got us through a protected area into a Peabody mine. And Peabody to this day is the largest manufacturer of coal products such as they are. And I was at literally the precipice in so many ways. And as we perched my uncle's car up on the brink of the cliff that fell away into this mountaintop removal, and this would have been about 1961, 1962, I just felt my heart sink and literally my belly go out from me. And I said to my parents, what is this? And they explained that in Ohio and West Virginia and Pennsylvania, strip mining is a source of money. And I said, well, what about where we live? And they said, well, they won't do this where we live. And I just felt this amazing sadness that stayed with me through those next dozen years before landing at university and then discovering the emerging field of environmental ethics while engaged in my studies of theology and religion. So that's sort of how it started. Wow. Uh, let me ask you, uh, I, I was curious about one thing I read in your bio. Uh, when you were a teenager, and I'm, I'm going to guess it's during that same period of time, uh, you began yoga and you received instruction at the uh, Anand uh, Ashram in Am Amityville, New York. And you studied classical Long yoga. Island. Amityville. That's Long Island. Long okay. Island. Yes. There you go. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we were all from the same area, by the way. I'm from... <laughs> Jersey City area, Phil from Brooklyn. That's where all the yogis come from, I guess. But uh, during that period, you studied classical yoga. Um, for me and for some of our listeners, how, how do you distinguish <clears throat> classical yoga from non-classical yoga and is what you teach classical yoga? Yes, uh, our teacher had grown up in Calcutta Born in 1935 and 1943, she started her first yoga class in this moment of the Indian Renaissance before the liberation from the British Raj. And her training was straight out of, as I've come to explore and learn, uh, the Garanda Samhita, Hatha Yoga Pradipika, and the Upanishads, Bhagavad Gita, and Yoga Sutras. So when I specify as classical, by that I mean tied to a lineage that was very attentive to daily practice, very attentive to text study. And in her particular instance, and in her given name, her birth name, Anjali Inti, her experience was 
very profoundly informed by a practice of connection with the Mahabhutas, which are the great elements, earth, water, fire, air, space. So the first four months were a crash course in the yamas and niyamas. And in addition to pranayama and asana and quiet sitting every day, every week we were given engagement exercises for nonviolence, for truthfulness, for not stealing, for minimalization of possessions, for cultivating cleanliness, for cultivating our own happiness, for developing an austere edge. In other words, daily fasting, rather weekly fasting, one day a week, and weekly silence, one day a week. And then, of course, cultivating a lifetime habit of study. And after that foundational four months, which has now continued for getting up toward you know, more than 45 years, what we began to train in was the dharanas for one month, 20 minutes in the morning and night on the earth, and then for one month on water, one month on fire, one month on air, and one month on space. And that caused me to draw from those childhood experiences in the forest, caused me to reflect in a very foundational way on the building blocks of what we now title environmental ethics and has moving forward informed my teaching at university for the last 40 years. So Chris, <clears throat> you have articulated very well, <clears throat> I've heard you do this, and I'm sure you've done it in scholarly uh, context as well, the connection between uh, yoga philosophy and, um, and you probably incorporate this into the yoga, yoga studies program at LMU, the, the connection between <clears throat> yoga, yogic teachings and uh, care for the environment. Do you also look at um, the theologies of other traditions and how they either support or contradict that? Because <laughs> we're in a, a world where, um, well, you know what I'm getting at. So, how, how do you how do you associate the different traditions in this regard? Right. Well, back in the very early '90s, late '80s, there was a conference convened by Stephen Rockefeller at Middlebury College, where the Dalai Lama attended, and rabbis, <coughs> and Catholic theologians, and Protestant theologians and people from Jewish tradition all talked about the interface of ecology and religion. And in 1991, I convened a major conference. We published a lovely book based on this that took a similar approach. And then in the late 90s at Harvard University Center for the Study of World Religions, my colleagues who I trained with at Fordham University implemented the first of 12 conferences where we took 
scholars and religious leaders, first from Buddhism, and then we, we made our way through. I organized the conference, co-organized Hinduism, organized Jainism, and conferences on Confucianism, Taoism, Christianity, indigenous traditions, the list, Judaism, Islam. List was very, very long, and we came out with a 10-book series on world religions in their specificity and ecology. So when I'm in the classroom, and I've been teaching this for many decades now, I draw from each of the wisdom traditions and emphasize that we're all concerned about the environment, but also look at the particularity of how the theology of each respective tradition contributes to this tapestry. I, I, I was going to ask, when I got involved with meditation, with yoga, back around probably when you did, uh, maybe early, early, around 1970, uh, most of the people going to it, myself included, uh, the major component was um, self-development. Uh, and, uh, and, and one of the things I've noticed over the years, and there's articles that have come out recently and over the years about it, is there's a certain amount of narcissism associated with um, spiritual development in, in what's called what would be called the New Age traditions in the United States, anyway, or worldwide. And, um, and it's here and it isn't there. And I mean, one of the reasons I started was for me, another was the emphasis on how it would bring world peace and all. You're, I'm very curious because I don't have as much contact with college students as you do. They come in now and they're going to take a course in, you know, uh, yoga. And do they come in because they want to feel good? Do they come in because they feel, do they make any connection to the environment? And whatever the answer, do you make those connections or work with them to make those connections in the classroom? Very, very much so. And it's so interesting because when you use the word narcissism or we even think of solipsism, and we think of the human as defining all that is good, and this particular human, whoever it may be, being the most important part of the universe, that's all true. It's all true that we are, at our core, inseparable from the greatness of the world, and as we, through meditation and through the refinement that comes with yoga, we also feel this incredible sense, first of connection and then of responsibility. And what we know now in higher ed, students are acutely feeling the pain, feeling the dystopia of climate change, feeling the dystopia of the sort of disconnect that they feel from their own bodies as the media and social media in particular governs their self-image. And what I've seen with students and what we've, um, we know from the literature, the studies of college students today is that their levels of anxiety, their levels of stress are very, very, very high. And this, sort of 60s concern about alienation is not as tempered as it was 
with this idealism that somehow we're going to let this old society go and we're going to create a new culture. And the whole countercultural idea was, was really exciting for many young people in the 60s and the 70s. And then once the capitalism of the 80s took over and the information control of the 90s took over, the kids got squeezed out. And their humanity really took a hit. So what we're discovering, and we, you know, some of these kids grew up with yoga, and their, their mother made them do it. And it's now become so mainstream, what we're able to do is to show them that there are connections with potential solutions. And it's so um, invigorating and exciting to be with these young people. I've had students who are engineers that have created water treatment systems that have been put into use in, in parts of Africa that really, really struggle with clean water. I had one student who went back to Bangalore and anyone who has been into these countries such as India and Indonesia that are just swimming with plastic waste and she has this whole remarkable website and really a grassroots movement to solve the problem of solid waste disposal in South India. And I see that uh, they're developing these, these online platforms that will come up with small strategies for implementing change. This summer, I have a student who developed an incubator with support of the university for distributing non-plastic containers. And we know from uh, just our, our, our general media awareness that these problems seem so entrenched that the young people are really committing themselves to do what they can in order to support the solar industry in order to support recycling and upgrade it, in order to support having direct experiences in nature. So this was one of the, the real joys of, of the COVID experience was that students were not able to do the things they usually do, which is to hang out with one another, which is to go out and you know, go to parties or you know, travel around, travel the world, and instead, they were able to hike. And they discovered and they narrated in their projects, these undergraduate students through the fall, they narrated having made hikes in places close to their home that they didn't even know existed. Mm -hmm. And it really brought them a sense of joy that will abide it brought them knowledge that they can feel life without having to pay money. It brought them knowledge that they can be as good a photographer as anybody else in the world if they develop the eye, and many of them did in their final projects. And this actually brought me a great deal of, of hope and it was for them a lifeline 
out of boredom into a sense of meaning and purpose. Chris, um, in uh, advocating uh, a, a kind of spiritual or uh, theological approach to the ecology and advocating for you know, act, action around climate change and, and uh, uh, environmental crises, do you run into a backlash or counter arguments uh, of the sort that say, well, but we want a prosperous nation and we need to, we can't harm the economy and everybody has a right to, you know, drive a car and, and you, you, you're this yogi who wants us to all live like Gandhi. I mean, <laughs> do you run into that sort of thing? I mean, even in India, you know, everybody wants to, you know, is, is, has the economy in mind and Arta, is is one of the aims of life prosperity and and so forth do you run into those uh, imagined conflicts and how do you react to it well it's interesting because the approach that has is on offer with my books and with the other readings and the activities in which the students participate is not a head-on critique and they certainly read the critique, particularly in Laudato Si. And if we want a vital indictment of the ills of consumerism, we just need to look at the Roman Catholic Church, which <laughs> put it all out there as official church teaching that if you're trying to find happiness and getting stuff, you will be disappointed. So that's like sort of the default. And rather than emphasizing what for me is very much the obvious, there's a, a Sanskrit expression called Pratipakshabhavanam from the Yoga Sutra, which says, cultivate the opposite. So what we do by in-group, engage. Uh, Chris, we lost your audio for a second. Back, I think. What, just back up. Uh, a uh, half a minute. What you do in the group? Teaching in doing the group in Sanskrit is called pratipakshabhavanam. And rather than really just trying to problem, what we do is we throw ourselves, body mind, into the solution. And the solution is to cultivate intimacy. <clears throat> to cultivate a sense of emplacement, a sense of place, a knowledge of the watershed, a knowledge of the original going back, in the case of the United States, thousands of years to the, the first inhabitants and what were their needs and how did they solve those issues? And with the close down of so many distractions, the students have really taken to this. They have so enjoyed this access to their own body and breath, access to listening and observing the birds in their neighborhood, watching the seasons change. And this is not controversial. It's simply beautiful, a celebration of beauty. And whereas the 
students would say, well, but we really need, and then they're realizing that all the stuff that they thought that they needed, that they've had to set aside, they can develop a new relationship with as the world reopens. Uh, Phil, uh, do you want to wrap it up? Well, I, I had a couple of things in mind to ask Chris. I was, Chris, I was looking at the, uh, your recent articles. Uh, and in addition to uh, being amazed at, at your pro, how prolific you remain, um, I see a couple of titles stood out at me. One was Ecology in a Time of COVID. And another was The World's Religions in a Time of Pandemic. Uh, obviously, timely stuff that um, was published within the last year. Um, how, what was the emphasis of these and what perspective are you bringing to, to I mean, they're two different articles, but I'm sure there's a, common, a commonality. Yeah, it's really a threefold analysis that begins with the microbial. And in traditional cultures, they knew about germs. In fact, there were inoculations for hundreds of years, particularly in Africa and India, against smallpox. And this respect for the microbe we see in the wearing of face masks that goes back thousands of years in India. Wow. We see it in the filtering of water, which again goes back thousands of years in India. And it is also to be seen in the saying of namaste, whereas there is a restraint from touching the other. So the very, very small has been with us. If I could interject, I think the handshake is going to disappear and we're going to see more of this for sure. And, and maybe what about the, the touching of the guru's feet? I wonder if that will uh, be effective. <laughs> It could be. Maybe within one's pod, you can still touch your parents' feet in India, yeah. right? Yeah. So then the second is the interpersonal. And we saw with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, this welling up of the human heart. And all through the world, people pouring out onto the streets, saying, let every human have dignity. And for this, I retrieved the writings of Mahatma Gandhi. And what grounded Gandhi in his remarkable and important work was daily reflection on the last 18 verses of the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, which is about finding equanimity. And by developing equanimity, and by examining all of those forces that dislodge ourselves from our equanimity, we must grapple with racism. We must grapple with that all too human proclivity to other, the other. We must back away from those impulses, interrogate those impulses, study and learn 
where did this notion of whatever the category of person may be, where did this come from and be honest with our own responses and then do what we can in order to, in a sense, inoculate ourselves against otherism. And then the third, so we went from small to the human body and then to climate change. And my poor students earlier in the fall of 2020, were zooming in and then they would just point their cameras and they were in the Bay Area and it was apocalyptic, straight out of a movie. And these poor young people were living in a hell realm, the likes of which none of us had ever seen. And that calls us again to a reflection of the very small, the human body small, and the impact of the very small on the human body, and then the impact of the overload of the human body on the planet itself. And we need to attune ourselves to all of the information we now have. And there's so much irony because we think that we defeated the virus, but then this other virus pops up. And we think that by extending human life, that we've made a better world. And then we're realizing that we must change our ecological footprint. And the students were so dialed in and the students were very well prepared coming into class to rethink their choices moving forward. And to see some of the young people going into the sciences, going into media, going into, I would envision, social work, and doing what is needed to bring about the repair that is essential if, as indigenous wisdom has it, we're to ensure a safe world for our children's 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 children, seven generations out. We need to develop that mindset. Very good. Thank you, Chris. Um, this is, <clears throat> people will be hearing uh, and listening to this uh, in the early part of 2021. It's a very uh, hopeful message to begin uh, a new year and what well, we hope will be a, a much better year. Any final words, Dennis, or before we yeah, go? Yeah, uh, I was just thinking, I wish I was a student at Loyola Marymount so I could take your course. This is the kind of stuff Phil and I love to discuss and, uh, you know, to, to have been able to do it, to be able to do it in college uh, would, be, <laughs> would be wonderful. So uh, keep up the good work and keep us posted. And uh, my hope is that you'll be a regular on our show. Well, very good. And my, my last word is that develop intimacy with place, 
And that's where the happiness can be found in the here and in the now. Great. Thank you, Chris. And uh, to our listeners, um, we wish you a happy new year and um, a reminder that uh, Dennis and I have been doing this for several years now. We want to keep the podcast free. We want to upgrade our presence online and do other things for which we need some funding. And so uh, we invite you in the spirit of uh, generosity to go to our website, uh, spiritmatterstalk.com and uh, click on the button and join our growing list of contributors. So uh, thanks again, Chris. Thank those people that have been contributing and helping us to stay on the year. Yes. Happy New Year to all. Yeah. Because we, we, we want to keep it free. Uh, we want, if you can't afford, just keep listening. But those that can help, uh, that would be great. And again, we, yeah, we want to upgrade some of it. And we're on video now. So. Okay, That's everybody. Make it, a, make it a happy new year. Bye.